Welcome, inappropriate Earl listeners. Uh, today, it's very exciting. I probably have the smartest person I've ever had on this podcast because usually my guests are fellow comics, 80s metal musicians. And my excitement with this next guest is he said yes. I read a lot of positive thinking books. I always reach out to the authors, the Tony Robbinses of the world, the Jack Canfields, the Jin Sinceros. They don't even get back to me. And I'm really nervous right now because this next guest has put me under pressure of not asking him the typical questions that he receives on his new book, The Art of Impossible. Please, inappropriate all fans, get your thinking caps on for this one. Mr. Stephen Collar, thank you. It's good to be with you. That was a, that was a nice intro, though. Well, I think I probably spent way more time hanging out with 80s metal musicians and comics than I might with smart people as well. <laughs> Well, they're a fun group to hang out with, but uh, I've never had a person on the podcast nominated for two uh, Pulitzer Prizes. So, uh, you know, you're increasing the brainwave activity already of this podcast. Um, I read your book in three days and uh, because as a comic, I'm always looking for a way to maintain the, the flow, if you will. Uh, while I'm on stage, and this goes in line with me not asking you the typical questions. The other night I was on stage at the comedy store doing an hour set in the main room, uh, which is the number one stage in the country. And the first 28 minutes were good, but they actually felt like 28 minutes. Mm -hmm. That makes any sense. Yeah, totally. And then one joke got the audience completely on board and the remaining 32 or so minutes felt like five minutes. Um, and that what is what I found your book to be about is how to get to that last 32 minutes. Um, because I just felt I think, like I think that's a great description of actually what the art impossible is, is about. I think you're actually totally correct. Uh oh, wow. Now I feel smarter. But I, because as soon as I, and it was after I'd read your book, and I remember about minute 34 into that uh, performance, I'm like, oh my God, this is what the guy's talking about. You know, where that, that flow, if you will, has kicked in. The dopamine uh, has started uh, coming into my brain in increments. And it, it was magical. And I guess my first question, and it might be my only question, is how do you get to that state, say, in minute seven instead of minute 28? Or is that possible? That is, it's a great, great, great question. Um, let's back up and sort of start at the beginning, um, I think. Uh, so I'm going to use a bunch of terms like peak performance. When I will start there, when I say peak performance, every human being is designed for peak performance. And we'll talk about why in a second. But what I want people to understand right away is when I use that term, I mean nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. 
So that's sort of where we're starting, right? And at the heart of the bio, that biology, there are, if you're dealing with cognitive peak performance, you're not talking about athletics. We're not, you know, we're not track and field, playing football, whatever. We're just going to stay in cognitive mental peak performance, um, which comedy requires. There's really four categories, right? When you talk about peak performance, there's a set of skills that are filed under the heading of motivation. There's a set of skills under the heading of learning. Another set of skills under the heading of creativity. And finally, there's a set of skills under what you were just referencing, the heading of flow. So let's define flow for a second for anybody who isn't familiar with the term. Flow refers to any of those moments of rapt attention, total absorption. You get so sucked in on what you're doing, paying attention to the task at hand. Everything else just seems to disappear. Your sense of self, your sense of self-consciousness, your awareness of yourself on the stage, right? As somebody do up there doing an act and the minutes are passing, disappears. Time starts to pass strangely, as you pointed out. The technical term is time dilation. What that means is either time slows down, you can get a freeze frame effect. You've ever been in a car crash, that freeze frame effect, that's time slowing down. Or much more frequently, what happens to you, it speeds up. Right. You feel all the first 28 minutes and the next 32 happen like that or five hours go by in like five minutes. And throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical tend to go through the roof, which is why flow is formally defined as an optimal state of consciousness, one where we feel our best and we perform our best. You want to know, how do I get into flow faster and more frequently? Right. How do I get there at, at minute seven instead of having to wait to minute 32? Couple things that are worth pointing out before we even get there is um, every human being, almost all mammals for that matter, are hardwired for flow. So there are times in our lives when you absolutely have to perform at your best, right? If you're running away from a tiger, those kinds of things. And evolution has hardwired certain states of consciousness to help us perform at our best in those crisis situations. That's what flow is, right? It's the state that has been designed for peak performance for this particular reason. It, it's built in, right? It happens in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. The question you're asking is, what are those conditions and how much can you work with them? And the short version is this. Flow shows up when all of our attention is focused in the right here, the right now. Turns out there are 22 flow triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. These are all things that if you look under the hood and you look at the neurobiology, what's happening in the brain, they're all things that drive attention into the present moment. You mentioned a couple of them earlier, dopamine. Some of flow's triggers produce the neurochemical dopamine. Dopamine, it's excitement, it's enjoyment. When it's in our system, we're curious, right? What happens when we're curious? You pay attention to the thing that's in front of you without having to work hard to do it. It happens automatically. That's what dopamine does for us. It drives attention to the present moment and helps it stay there. That's what all the flow triggers do. Sometimes they do it with dopamine. Sometimes they use another chemical called norepinephrine. Sometimes they do other things, but they're driving attention into the present moment. There are 22 flow triggers because flow comes in two varieties. And your question is tricky and we'll get to why, but flow comes in. There's individual flow. That's me in a flow state or you in a flow state, right? Alone by ourselves. And there are 12 known triggers for individual flow. There are probably way more, 
that's just what we've discovered so far. That's what just, and when I say we, I don't mean me, Stephen Collar, or even my organization, the Flow Research Collective. I mean the field of people who are studying peak performance and flow. And there's a lot of them. Um, there's 12 individual triggers. There's 10 group triggers because there's a shared collective version of a flow state. I would guess what happened to you last night is first you dropped into individual flow around like minute 28, something changed and you got a little bit of a reaction. We'll talk about what changed. You got a little bit of a reaction, the excitement built, the excitement built, the excitement built, and then the audience clicked and there was entrainment and the audience was suddenly there with you. Right. So group flow is when a whole group of people drop into a flow state together and it comes in varieties. There's, interpersonal flow. This is me and you. We're having a great conversation. We drop into flow. Five hours go by. We don't even notice, right? Really common flow state. There's group flow, team flow. This is a fourth quarter comeback in football or basketball, right? Where like the team, when you're looking at, when you're watching a football game and suddenly it looks like you're watching ballet instead of football, that's always a good indicator that it's group flow. When everybody's in the right place at the right time and the chaos sort of like becomes a dance and you're like, oh, okay, that's amazing chances are you're watching group flow in action or if you've ever been in a great brainstorming session, right? Where ideas are bouncing off the wall and everybody's really contributing that's group flow in action. Or there's the experience that you had on stage with an audience communitas group flow at scale with a group. So this is a rock concert or a political reality or comedy, right? Where you merge with the audience and everybody sort of like one comes one together sort of thing. It's communitas group flow at scale. So Let's talk about individual flow. Of the triggers that work for individual flow, and okay, we back up and tell you one other thing before we talk about the triggers. This is a long answer. You were right. This could take the whole hour, but it's a good question. I'm going to try to answer it. All right. There's one other thing I got to tell you about flow, which is there was an old idea about peak performance that it sort of worked like a light switch. You're in the zone. You're out of the zone right? You can turn it on or off. And it turns out that's not how it works at all. Flow is a four stage cycle and you have to move through each stage to rekindle flow. So every now and again, true story uh, for years, when I was first doing this research and talking about it in public, invariably somebody would come up to me, especially when I was working in funkier Arts, like communities I came out of. I'm an old school punk rocker. I come out of art communities and things like that. So when I'm closer to home, there was always somebody in the audience who'd come up to me. I've heard to like, dude, you got to study me. I'm in flow all the time. Uh And for years, I didn't know, like, I I didn't know what to do in that particular moment. And finally, after like five years of this, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start telling people the truth, which is, oh, that's interesting. You know, we have a word for that. We call that schizophrenia. (laughs) sometimes we call it manic you know mania but often we call it schizophrenia and that's the truth you can't be in flow all the time if there is such a thing as enlightenment or whatever might be called enlightenment it's not permanent flow because flow is a four-stage cycle and while one stage is the flow state itself the other three are very different and so one of the Simple answers to your question is, and I'll talk about what the stages are in a second, is you want to know how to move through the cycle more quickly. That's sort of one of the questions you're asking, right? And flow starts with a struggle phase. So this is a loading phase. This is where you're loading the brain with information. This is all the days before last night 
where you were working out bits of your routine, right? Bits of your set and everything was bombing, right? The bits you had were new, were, they were like that struggled, right? It's just not gonna work and you're just gonna fall in your face a lot. And then it's gonna start, you know, clicking together. What happens in struggle and how you move through struggle more quickly is interesting. Couple things that are important. One, frustration is built into the process, literally. So that feeling of frustration that we often get along the way when we're in struggle, we're trying to learn something, trying to perfect something, trying to get better at it, and the anger that comes with it. And you know, the if you're me, the shame, the beating up on yourself, the all, all that crap turns out it's actually totally unnecessary. Frustration is a sign that you're moving in the right direction. It's not a sign you're moving in the wrong direction. The reason is you have, I'm going to use a big word, working memory, right? This is all the shit you can think about at any one time. It's all the stuff you can hold on to at once. Our working memory is really limited. We can, at the outside, we can remember roughly seven to nine digits, like single digits. Why phone numbers are used to be seven digits long. We've got seven slots in our working memory for digits. But if we're trying to remember something harder, like concepts or how a routine, a comedy routine fits together and where the beats are and like all that stuff, concepts, most of us tap out after four. So if you're trying to learn something and I tell you there are four things wrong that you're trying to fix at once you there's you're overloaded. You're now like, it's too much information. You're now frustrated. Or when you're learning new skills and you've learned four concepts, once you're past there, you've it's, I'm not saying you can't keep going, but you're going to frustration is going to start to build because you literally you've used up all the freaking Ram in your brain. What, the research shows is if you want to maximize learning, what you want to do is take yourself up to this crazy edge of frustration and then take your mind off the problem. This is the second stage of the flow cycle. First stage is struggle. Second stage is release. Release is, now we're going to come back to what you did in, an, in a high contact situation for release, but release for most people, it's literally like if you've been, for me, I'm writing all morning, right? I'm trying to get sentences to work and paragraphs to work. And, you know, I'm a writer. Most times I don't work, right? Like the only time a book ever works is at the moment that I send it to my editor and say, okay, now it's freaking done and take it and publish it, whatever. Like, right. Like that's the only moment that I'm like, okay, this is solid. Everything else is like, oh, this was great yesterday, but today I realized I failed and let me fix it. Um, you know, that's the process of writing. Um, I can work three or four hours on two paragraphs, get nowhere. Then you have to take your mind off the problem. What has to happen is your brain has to pass it from conscious thought to the subconscious. So your subconscious, which is much faster, much more powerful and a much better pattern recognition system can process the information for you. And it happens during release. Low grade physical activity works best here. So long walks, I go for long walks. I go for a writing session. I, I write for three or four hours, take my dog for a hike in the, in the hills behind my house for 40 minutes. Uh, Albert Einstein famously used to uh, sail a boat into the middle of Lake Geneva and stare up at the clouds. Uh, there was uh, research done by a screenwriter, Lee Slodoff, who was really interested in this problem. And he found that building model airplanes were actually one of the best sort of low-grade physical activity. You just basically want something that's going to keep your body a little bit busy and your mind a little bit busy, but not tire you out. Yoga, restorative yoga works out, works well here. You, you can exercise, but if you exercise to exhaustion, you're going to take too much energy out of your system to get into flow. So low-grade exercise will work, et cetera, et cetera. Then once you can do that, 
with proper application of flow triggers. We're going to come back to what triggers we're talking about. Next stage of the cycle is flow, big high, everything comes together. On the back end of a flow state, there's a recovery phase. So if you performed last night and you went out and you partied afterwards, you didn't get much sleep, um, you're not recovered. You're going to have a really shitty time getting into flow tonight if you need to perform again. Because flow is a high energy state, it burns a lot of calories, you need certain things to replenish it, and you, you need good sleep, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a recovery phase on the back end of flow. And it's especially crucial because flow, to reboot the flow cycle, you actually have to go into struggle. You go from recovery back into struggle and then move through the cycle again. And if you're not getting any sleep and you're not doing the things you need to do in recovery, you can't get the energy you need for struggle. And now I've given you the big outline of the whole flow cycle. Let's shrink it and let's talk about what the hell happened to you last night and, and, and just in terms of the flow cycle. And then we'll come back to the triggers and how to amplify it. Yeah, this, this could take a while, but it, tell me if it's not useful. Like if, I lo if I've lost you or you none know. of this is useful. Okay. Because it's a cool question. Um, and uh, it's funny because I, I actually, I've, over the years, I've done a lot of, I like comedy. And, I, and, um, uh, and I've spent a bunch of time around comics over the years. And I've been really interested in doing flow research with comics. Um, though I haven't quite figured out how to do it yet. But no, I, I, Duncan Tressel and I were talking about this a couple of years ago. And we never quite figured out, we never got it together to figure out how to do it. Um, but I'm still like, if you want to get me a group of comics who want to do flow research, I'll figure out a way to do it. Like we can, we can, we can do this offline, um, but I'm in. Um, Cause I, I, I think it's a cool art form and I think it, it opens some interesting avenues into studies on flow and creativity. Um, what, so oftentimes in struggle, one of the hardest things people do is because they expect flow, they want it to feel flowy. They're looking for that flowy, that even rhythm. And it turns out that even if struggle takes place only in 10 seconds, you have to trigger flow is an adaptive stress response. It's a low grade. It's similar to the fight or flight response. So there's got to be a moment of, and I'm sure this happened to you last night. There's a moment of, oh, fuck, this isn't going right. I got to really, I got to lean in. I got to get aggressive. I got to step into this, right? What happens then is the body generates a little bit of testosterone, men and women, a little bit of testosterone, a little bit of norepinephrine, which is the brain's version of adrenaline. And it, drives focus and it gets you ready for the fight, right? It probably got you ready to lean into a, a, a joke that you needed to really land to bring the audience back to you. So one thing to be aware of is, and this is, so this is an issue. I don't know how to, I don't know if I can do it in comedy, but I'll give it to you in both writing and action sports. So we'll start in action sports. So really, really, really most common mountain biking injury is a broken collarbone. You get pitched over your handlebars and you land on your shoulder and you break collarbone. Arguably the most common cause of the most common mountain bike injury is people go out for a bike ride, mountain biking, and they want it to be flowy. 
and they think that in their memory of flow is that it means it's a flowy even. And that's not mountain biking is a violent, aggressive sport. And if you go out looking for flowy, you're going to get bucked over your handlebars because your weight's going to get shifted in the wrong place because you're trying to control the bike instead of going with the aggression of the sport. You actually have to lean into the violence of the sport. It's on the other side of that aggression that you will get to flow, but you can't do it without that. So you can't in a common, you know, in a writing situation, this will often be, so I'm going along and I'm writing. I don't know if this works on stage, but I'm sure it works when you're writing material. I'm going along and I'm writing and like, I've got a paragraph that's just not working. And it's four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning. And I, I can write till eight o'clock. And, you know, I have to stop and be like, you know what? If it fucking takes me the next three hours to write one sentence, great. I've written one sentence. I don't care. Like stop everything. Forget about it. This is just about one sentence. In fact, start with two words and I build from there. Right. And I'm like, okay, we got one sentence could take me an hour and then I'll get a second. And I have to do that to give myself the, like the permission to like get aggressive and sort of attack the problem one sentence at a time and not care about, Oh my God, I've got a book. I got a deadline. I got a family to feed like any of that other stuff. It's got to go away because I have to get aggressive and attack the thing. That's, um, I think, useful to know in moving from one situation to the other. Um, the, the attack mode is useful for what it does internally in terms of focusing our attention. And one of the cool things about norepinephrine, and this is something that probably happened to you last night. So what comedy, any creative art is about pattern recognition. Right. In, if it's writing, I'm recognizing patterns in the language. If it's comedy, the language is sort of predetermined. You figured out the joke. You're making minute variations in the joke in real time in relationship to the feedback you're getting from the audience. It's pattern recognition. You're taking this is my material. This is where the audience is at. This is how I'm going to deliver my material to really connect to the audience. Or do I have to shift, find a new joke or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, the same thing happens if you're talking about playing music or delivering theater, you know, theater lines or whatever. May all this making sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, not, not to I, I don't want to interrupt you at all. No, no. Just interrupt me. It will. I'll talk fucking forever. Haven't you figured I, that out by now? No, I love it. Uh, what I think what happened about the 28 minute mark, long story short. Yeah, tell there, me. There was a uh, very famous uh, Disney actor in the crowd. And I think he had invited three girls to the show. Uh, let's just say the three girls did not know about the other. So their table was right in front and he, he was being disruptive. Uh, and then the one, the hotter of the three girls was amping up her anger at him. And I think I said, I think the line that got the crowd and made that final 32 minutes seemed like five was I said, Hey buddy, can you be quiet? I know you're paying by the hour. So let me get this wrapped up. And the crowd just blew up and it was sold out. And I knew at that point I could say anything. And I think that was the, the button of dopamine that was released was like, I'm in. And so so let me ask you, let me add a couple of two things. So that's classic 
example of flow's most important trigger. Now we're back to triggers in a sense. What's flow's most important trigger? It's known as the challenge skills balance, right? The idea here is flow follows focus. We may pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge slightly exceeds our skill set. When we got to stretch but not snap, right? When you're pushing yourself to the edge of your skills, when you have to stop your routine, react in real time to a disruptive dude, pushing you to the edge of the challenge skill spot. You have to take a little bit of a risk. When you take a little bit of a risk, you get dopamine. When you push to the edge of the challenge skill spot, you get dopamine. And there is novelty, probably a line you've never delivered before. Never. First time, right? So that was novelty that gives you more dopamine. That's what sort of drives you. I would also tell you that if the dude was disruptive in the front row with three attractive women, other people were noticing, right? So the tension in the room is higher um, a little bit. So when you finally actually tell the dude to settle down and shut up, everybody else calms down a little. They drop into their challenge skills sweet spot. This, they came to see comedy. Now they've got anxiety because the dude's disruptive. By taking charge of the situation, you calm people down. That drop in norepinephrine, that drop in anxiety will also can help drop a crowd into the challenge skill sweet spot. Well, I was very uh, scared to, to do the line because a line like that uh, could uh, alienate me against the women in the room. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know who this gentleman was until after, but I could tell he was someone because there was a, a buzz in the room of, oh, my God, this dude's here. I don't watch Disney uh, Channel. But uh, so it was, I guess, going out of my comfort zone because I'm usually not an aggressive comic in terms of picking on people. But I just felt I had enough fear in me. But enough enough is enough with this guy where I took the leap. So uh, which I'm glad I did. And the, yeah, and the, I mean, the, that fear is. You know, it's always useful. There's always elements in performance, sort of in everything where, you know, there's it's that one second gap of I got to jump into the unknown. And that, in a sense, is what you're like. You want to get there in minute seven. Yes. This is an answer. So the answer is that how you get there is. You want you want to up the neurochemistry so you can you can use creativity. You made up a joke. Creativity, when two ideas link together, you get a little more dopamine. You can use novelty. You made up a joke, right? Um, you can put that earlier in your act. Where I've seen this go wrong, I'll give you a really great example. I don't do any comedy. I do a ton of public speaking, and I have forever. Um, and, uh, and believe it or not, before I, was a, I did public speaking, I was a, mad, I was a magician. As you know, you read Art of Moscow, right? So from the age 11 to the... Almost by the time I went to college, I did magic. I did birthday parties and bar mitzvahs and, you know, worked in restaurants doing doing stuff. And um, so I've spent on and off my, most of my uh, life on stage since, you know, I was 11 and playing with crowds and things along those lines. Um, the danger, and you see this in public speaking a lot, is my job. This is why I told you, ask me different questions. My part of my job as, 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 you know, whatever it is, is to basically get on stage and say the same thing for 10 years, right? If you want to be good at sharing ideas with the world, if you care about the idea, 
you got to say the same thing over and over and over and over for decades with very minor variations in themes, right? Like, so a lot of it is a lot like stand-up comedy in that the material's locked. You're just, you're improving on very small sections to find your audience and connect with them. What happens to people who get too giddy with flow is they'll start improving really early. They go off script. They leave the material because they like the high. Yes. One of the things that you have to know, so this is, comes out of, this, we, we learned this the hard way in education. So in education, there's a really weird thing where 90% of the time, the teacher's in flow, the students aren't in flow. And the reason is when you're in flow as a teacher, you're sort of at the edge of your knowledge base. You're talking about the cool new stuff that you're into and you're learning and you're all excited because there's dopamine, there's novelty and there's creativity, but your students who don't know any of this shit and they're just trying to like get their feet wet are totally freaking lost. They're not engaged and you've lost the room completely. So that happens. I don't know if it happens in comedy. Um, and I guess that depends on your improv skills, but you see it a lot in public speaking where people will, they'll, they'll start to get fame. They'll start to get known and they'll get to a certain point where they they start believing their press. They start thinking that like, it's them, it's not the material. And I, Oh, I don't need to practice. I don't need to rehearse. I can just freestyle on stage because I'm the show. And you see a lot of careers go away that way. And it's the lure of flow that is luring people in. So you can get there faster, but you have to make sure you're bringing the audience along with you. Because the night, it's funny, the night before that set, I had the complete opposite experience where I was in a smaller room. I don't want to like get this too comedy focused, but uh and it's uh, a very dark room. The ceilings are low. The energy is is really locked into that room. But when it's not going great, it can be dreadful in that room. And uh, every comic that night, including some very big names, were bombing. And I got up there. And that's usually my specialty is taming a bad room for whatever reason. I think it's because I'm 53 and I'm wearing leather pants and a a rat t-shirt and the crowd just laughs at me before I say anything. But that 15 minutes in that room that night felt like four hours. Uh, I'm breaking out my greatest hits that usually work, little zingers that usually work. And the crowd just was staring at me like I was on fire. And it, it was like the opposite of flow, uh, where none of my old tricks were working. And so it was just weird to experience that the next night of where flow was completely working for me. I mean, what do you do, I guess, when, and I, I guess you're right, maybe that frustration from the first night led to the greatness of the second night. So there is, there is that, you know what I mean? And there are, um, I mean, look, flow requires, there's a lot of external variables. You know what I mean? We could talk about like physiology. And I can give you a bunch of technical terms, but like you haven't slept right. If you haven't, Eden, right? If you have like, there's a lot of physical stuff. There's, um, and it, you're, you're in a really tricky situation because you like, you need the room to come along with you. So there's, there's a bunch of research and no real, I don't say information like knowledge, but there's a bunch of like environmental flow, office design and flow. How do you build a high flow office and all that stuff? And 
is the same going to be true for a comp, like a comedy space, a theater? Like, of course, you know what I mean? Good rooms and, 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 and bad rooms. Um, I gotta believe there's some algorithm that we can't like, you need this many happy people in this many spots. You know what I mean? Like there's a way we could try to fucking analyze. I don't think we're going to get anywhere, but like, you know what I mean? So like, there's some rooms I think you're just going to bomb. And there are just some days where you're just not going to have the energy for, you know, whatever reason. And, um, some of it is, uh, so one of the things I always tell people, for example, during recovery is you, part of recovery isn't just like getting enough sleep, getting enough food, that sort of stuff. We have, uh, every situation you're in, every time you're in any facing any, any, any issue, right. It could be, could be a challenge that you're going to rise to. It could be a problem that's going to defeat you. Um, either or, but when you come into that situation, your brain makes an energy assessment. It says, how much energy do you need to face this issue? And it bases that on a bunch of stuff where your sleep level is, where your, you know, energy level, how much you've eaten, your nutrition, but also social support. So if you aren't like, if your relationships suck, there's a emotional in the moment cause because your brain runs a danger assessment. You'd like you're on stage, right? You're, you're on stage comedy bombing and you want to like do something risky, right? Should you, or should you not tell that joke last night? Right. That's the question. So when your brain was making up the decision of should I should not do this, one of the things it's asking is, are you solo? Because if you're alone, if there's nobody in the room who's got your back or there's no people who love you to pick you up, should you fall? This is a really big problem. I need to produce a lot of energy and maybe you shouldn't take this risk. It's too big. But if you've got posse, if you know people love you, if you've reached out and had a good conversation that day with somebody you're close to, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then when your brain runs that same calculation, it's calmer. Why does this matter so much? Because it's challenge skills thing, right? How big is the challenge? How big of the challenge is, and part of the recovery process and part of the struggle process is, have you manicured your relationships that has an impact on like in the moment performance that we don't often suspect? I mean, we, we all know it in like work environments, right? You get in a fight with your wife or your daughter or your brother, and then you try to go to work later that day and you can't focus and you're exhausted. And you, like, we know we see the penalty then, but there's penalties in crisis situations as well for those same kind of mistakes. Well, you talk about a lot about grit in the book. Um, like to me, grit is like Rocky training, you know, in the meat locker, just, you know, I'm a big Stallone guy. Uh, and, or, you know, in Rocky three, I'm going to use a lot of Rocky references, uh, you know, Mr. P in the basement doing the one arm pull-ups, just saying, F it, this is what I got to do to beat a fictional fighter in Rocky, but <laughs> Rocky, all right. uh, that to me is grit, but, uh, it, the grit you spoke about wasn't necessarily so barbaric. Well, you're not wrong that that's grit. What all, so when psycho when a psychologist defines grit, most of the time they use Angela Duckworth's really famous, great definition, the intersection of passion and perseverance, right? You're talking about the perseverance element, but the truth of the matter is if you actually spend time working and training with tons and talking to lots of top performers, peak performers, they, 
they'll everybody agree with that definition, but they'll also say under that perseverance category, first of all, passion, there's separate things. Perseverance is what you need when you run out of passion, right? And if you look under the hood of perseverance, there's like six different kinds of grit or perseverance that you need to train. They're all sort of individual skill sets. And you can't, you can go Rocky Balboa on them for brief periods of time. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's you, it, and fighters are great for this. They periodicize their training and you, you can sort of do that in a sense, but it doesn't work over a lifetime. Like how the hell are you going to sustain that? So in order to sustain what we would call grid and perseverance over a lifetime, there's six different ways. There's six different things you have to train. And one of them is perseverance, right? It's punch me in the face, you know, kick me in the teeth, whatever. I'm still coming. You cannot knock me down. And there there's like, we all know how to train that one. You have to push yourself slightly harder than you did the day before for long stretches of time. And, you know, this is everything from, you know, I lift weights. I've lifted weights for a, a lot of years. Sometimes this means if you're doing three sets of 10, one of those sets becomes a set of 11 or 12. So you can prove to yourself that you can do it. It doesn't have to be 18, but I'm just going to go too farther today. And maybe tomorrow I'll go, or, you know, you just go up and wait a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. In writing, it could mean I write an extra hundred words today um, than I did yesterday. You know, there's very ways to grid it, but that's only the first level of perseverance. There's also much more important is the the ability to control your thoughts, the voice in your head. This is where tools like meditation or resp- you know, re- respiration, mindfulness, all those things sort of come into play because they're ways of training, getting a gap in between sort of emotion and feeling and you know, getting a little bit more emotional regulation, a little more calm in the situation. And thought control, as you know, is absolutely key to peak performance. You're never going to win a battle against the voice in your head that way. You can't. It's it's designed to beat you to beat you in that. So you have to learn to work with it and learn to control with it. And it takes a long time. There's grit to train your weaknesses, right? That's a that's a different category. We've all got weak spots in our game, and the problem is in crisis situations. That's off that that's the weak link that's where shit's gonna go wrong so you got to train your weaknesses and there's like three or four others the cool thing about it is they're all trainable and they're not actually that hard to train and obviously as as you know anybody you know the rewards are amazing you know what i mean like but i also tell people like in art of impossible Grit falls under the category. I said in the beginning, hey, there's a bunch of skills under the motivation heading. There's extrinsic motivation. Shit will work hard in the real world to get money, sex, fame, intrinsic motivation, passion, purpose, curiosity, right? Then there's goal setting and then there's grit and there's six categories of grit. That the order that's laid out in Art Impossible is based on, you know, there's been really cool advances in the neuroscience peak performance of the past 20 years. We've learned a great deal. And we've sort of, one of the things that we've learned is that there's an order to the process. Like there's a way evolution sort of designed us to onboard new skills. You don't have to follow the blueprint. You can hopscotch around and, and, and do it any which way you can, and you'll still get there. 
but it's just easier if you work with your biology, right? I said in the beginning, peak performance is nothing more than getting our biology work for us rather than against us. There's an order. It's evolution shaped it to come on board this way. There are reasons. And if you just go in that order, it's easier. So in the book, I, I start with where motivation starts with this extrinsic motivation. Then we cover intrinsic, then we do goal setting, and then we get to grit. And one of the reasons is once you get those first three categories, right, you start getting more flow. And if you start training a lot of grit stuff before you're getting flow, you're just going to burn out. It's freaking miserable, right? It'd be like being a comic and bombing every night, never getting better and never getting any flow. How long are you persevering, right? It doesn't, it's not sustainable. Well, I think uh, the biggest takeaway I got from your book, uh, and I'm not going to lie, I got a little lost on some of the parts of the brain talk, but I'm not like the smartest guy in the world. Like when you were mentioning the, you know, the amygdala and, and the frontal cortex, I was like, Jesus, can you just say the front of the brain? Uh, but that's me, uh, is the passion because, uh, you pop into my head a lot and, uh, let me finish before you go. This guy's a stalker. Uh, like last night I was asked, uh, Earl, what happened to the group of friends that you started comedy with 20 years ago? And I started to think, and I, I thought, wow, about 90% quit. And I kind of wondered why, and I they didn't have the passion for it that I do. Uh, you know, like I'm not into comedy for the fame or the money. I certainly realize you can get those things if you stick with it and you're, if you have a base a borderline talent level. But those other 90% of my friends, they just, they didn't want to struggle. They, you know, there's, I think, at least in comedy and, and maybe other, maybe not big wave surfing, like the great Lord Hamilton, there's a, I want it now. And I don't want to work for it a long time. And I think with the grit, the goals, you know, the flow state, you don't get any of that if you don't have the passion. Am I wrong in, in that assessment? I don't think you're wrong because so there are there are people who get lucky, right? There's people who have Brad Pitt's abs and they get cast in Thelma and Louise, right? But you still have to like that happens once. You know what I mean? Like I always say the worst thing that can happen to any creative is like for an author, your first book is a hit. Because as a general rule, you're so young in your career, you don't actually even know how you wrote that first book. Right. <laughs> right. And you haven't figured out that. And then you come to your second book where you actually have to figure out how to do all that stuff. And it crushes a lot of people. I think early success is really um, is dangerous. Like it's a that's a hard one to negotiate. But if so, if we throw that aside, success is a very long haul. There's no nobody. You know what I mean? There's no, I, I even when I was back in a journalist, I was covering you know, I was in Los Angeles and I was writing about, you know, Hollywood stuff. I always said that, like, I was always interested. I didn't care who I was in the room with. I could be writing a, a Maxim story about a cover, like their cover girl. Nobody got on the cover of Maxim by acts. Like, it's hard to it's hard to get famous. It's hard to be at the top of any game. You can get lucky, but staying there actually requires skill and grit and all that. It's fucking hard. It's hard in every profession. And so without the passion, you will sooner or later, you're going to quit. Right. I always say that they all, how I could always tell a real creative from a fake one. Creatives are now, I like, 
I like with authors. I, I'm all, I always want to start my next book before I publish the one I'm writing. Yeah. Cause it's not a, like what happens after I put it out in the world. That's the world. Yeah. There's some PR and marketing stuff that I'm supposed to do. I have a job, right. But like what it does, does it tank? Does it, is it a bestseller? Does it get nominated for a, like, I don't care. My job, I'm already on to the next project. Creatives are all about the next project because we like the high of creating. That's the joy. And if you don't have, if that's not the passion, right? If that's, you're, you'll never stick with this career because the opposite, even if you get famous, you're going to get famous for three weeks and then somebody else is going to get famous for that. You know what I mean? Like, so, and you're left with yourself after the end of those three weeks. Oh, absolutely. I mean, passion. I mean, I've bombed, been rejected for more TV shows and probably every comic combined and I'm still going. Uh, and I started getting on TV shows and then, you know, got passed at the comedy store after 13 years, which, you know, uh, most people, I don't know if they admire my comedy, but they admire my ability to keep going, like just ramming through the wall. And uh, obviously I care, but. Well, I always said like the people who really interested me the most, one of my longtime biggest heroes is Tom Waits. Yes. And one of the reasons, you know, it's because he's, he's, he's been cutting edge, creative and innovative, like since the seventies to now. He's never, he's had an incredibly long creative career. He's had to reinvent himself and reinvent himself and reinvent himself and reinvent himself a little bit in really, and those are the things that are really super interesting to me is somebody, how do you, I call it long haul creativity. It's what I wrote about a little bit in Art Impossible, right? How do you sustain creativity of our career? And I don't like, that was, I, you brought up 80s, 80s hair bands always interested me a lot yes. because um, one of the things that I found super interesting and I, back as a journalist, we, we did these stories at a, at, at a magazine, like a couple of different magazines where I, like in the 80s, there were a bunch of dudes who were selling out 50,000 person stadiums who were house painting houses by the 90s. Yes. And I knew a bunch of those guys. Right. And I like and I. I was always like, that was what was fascinating to me is what it's got to feel like to go from like 5 million to painting houses, like that come down. And then, but what was really interesting was the guys who, yeah, they had the painting houses and then they went back and refound their creative career and started it again. And um, those are the things that are really interesting to me is how do you go from that ultimate success, crash all the way back down and then rebuild again? Those kinds of questions are really neat. Well, I think, uh, you know, I've struck up a weird friendship with Stephen Piercy, the singer from the band Rat. And, you know, they were, you know, at the top of the food chain, you know, they got lucky. You know, their first album came out when MTV was just a baby network and they put Milton Berle in their video and and they were huge and then they had a dip and then a little bit of a rise and then a dip. And I asked him when he came on my podcast, like, how do you keep going? And he just said, I love it. Like, you know, I've gotten the money, I've gotten the girls and I still like music. And, you know, he would put out a grunge album when, you know, grunge was big and it, you know, maybe it didn't work, but he still did it. And then, well, he never put out a boy band album, but like he, he kept going <laughs> and he's still touring. And, uh, you know, some bands like, uh, 
you know, say a Cinderella, you know, they had a big peak and then the grunge hit and then they tried to keep going. And then all four guys were like, that's it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm sure they had the passion for the music, but. Yeah. But even after that's it, right. Like the que- the question I ask is like, not so much because there's all kinds of next, are they still doing something creative with their time Right. That is as rewarding because I don't like, you know, this from comedy. If like your addiction is to the thing that happens when you're on stage, that's just a dopamine high. It's like sure. a sugar high. It's a fake high. And in, in fact, one of the things that I think is very true for extended peak performance is you got to learn to not ride that high too long. Cause if you ride it too high, it's going to take all your dopamine and it takes a while for that to replenish. And you need that to get into flow the next night. Right. So if you get seduced in by all the like stuff that comes along with it, then you're going to actually exhaust the kind of neurochemicals you need to achieve peak performance. Well, I think I'm, uh, you know, like the opposite of my favorite band, Kiss. You know, Kiss has uh, changed. You know, Polka was pop, you know popular. Kiss would put out a Polka album. Uh, you know, they kept their passion going, maybe for making money, not necessarily music. You know, with whatever trend was popular, they would jump on it. So if it was keyboard rock, all of a sudden keyboards were on a Kiss album. You know, if it was, you know, Pink Floyd, The Wall, they came out with a concept album and you know i'm more like this is my style of comedy i'm dry i'm sarcastic i'm not gonna act like dane cook not that there's anything wrong with that i'm not gonna tell jokes like chris delia not that there's anything wrong with that so uh is there a way to kind of almost balance sticking to your roots and maybe changing with the times well it's so this is a question i was so i was having this discussion from a different angle uh, with some writer friends the other uh, couple of weeks ago, because I, I unearthed the short story that I didn't even I remember writing from like 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And it's actually like, it's amazing. It's like a complete whole story. I was like, holy shit, I should publish this. Like, this is solid. But what was really wild about it was you could see my, my writing style from today. You could see a lot of, a lot more elements than I would have ever thought present present and i was like oh wow like this is great i do a specific thing that i'm known for and people appreciate and that's cool but it's also this weird prison of creativity where like as far in my mind as i thought as i've gone from the writer i was to today no it's actually not that it's a it's a much more kind of limited you know kind of circle than i thought i was in um and I've been thinking, I don't know what the answer is. Like the answer is obviously, yes, you can continue to be creative that way for a very long time. But I'm interested in the idea that like one style sort of becomes like not just a prison for your creativity, but like it's a, it's an invisible thing, right? Whatever your style is, it's, it's formed with you and like you can tinker with it. You can tiger woods it and try to reinvent your swing halfway through. But what I, because I think I've tried to reinvent my, I've written 14 books. I try to reinvent like how I write the book and how I sound and how I talk and how I approach it. Every, you know, every, every book is different from the next because I like the challenge, but it turns out they're all, they've got a similar voice. I can't break out of the, 
that thing I do, whatever it, you know what I mean? And I'm sure this, this, the same true is true. I don't know where this is going, but I just find it fascinating that like, it's hard to get past your style. So no, I think you have to just innovate on top of it. Well, no, I, I don't know where it was going either for, you know, I just, you know, I guess it maybe goes back to, you know, kiss stays in the state of flow by changing styles, every album. And then you take a band, like say motorhead that, Every Motorhead album sounds the same. Like you can't tell the first album is any different than the last album. Yeah, no, I, I, so Malcolm Gladwell's a writer. Like I always said, the most interesting thing to me about Malcolm Gladwell is um, almost every sentence is the same for his whole damn career. Like it's, it's freaky. There's another writer, there's an adventure writer, John Krakow, who wrote Into Thin Air. But yeah, he's been the same where you look at like he's written tons of books, they're all great. But he, it's the same style from like the first book to now. And I like, I don't even know how they do it. Like it makes no, I, I look at it like, I don't know how you pull that off at all. Or um, like there was an, I'll give you another writing example on this one. The guy who broke the global warming story, the climate change story. It was really one guy who kept writing. He's a Boston Globe reporter and he wrote the same story basically once every two weeks for almost a decade before people started paying attention, um, before scientists even started paying attention and things like that. And I remember talking to him about it and I was, I just, I remember thinking to myself as a flow junkie, as a writer, I don't know how the fuck you did that. Like, that's like a crazy magic trick to me. Writing the same story for a decade, you know what I mean? Like I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't, I, but you're right. There are, Kiss, Kiss pulled it off in, in their way. Neil Young with the shocking pinks, like he, he is the guy who's really like, he definitely went all over the place as well in those middle years. Oh, sure. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm just a fan of uh, persistence and resilience. Like, you know, the, the hottest TV show on right now uh, is Cobra Kai, you know, the series about the karate kid. And you look at most of the actors in Cobra Kai or the original actors from the three karate kid movies. These guys and girls couldn't get work the last 20 years, 25 years. And that yet some writer, you know, said, guys, I mean, I don't know if he said this or she, this can work in 2020. We can basically reintroduce the Karate Kid to the Gen Z millennial crowd. And, you know, it started off as just a small YouTube show that, you know, didn't get a lot of traction. Now it's the number one show on Netflix. So it, it took someone getting in that state of flow to put that idea out there into the world. And like, I also think there's one of the cool things about now is there's a lot more places to be an actor, to be a comic, to be a writer. I mean, it, it may be harder to get to like certain pinnacles that you could before but there's what's a lot what creativity was controlled top down for a lot you know you're my age right for yes. you, know, you, you i i grew up in cleveland right when i grew there was three networks and that was it we didn't get cable we didn't get like there was punk rock zines and three networks of television. And that was like, you know what I mean? And some magazines that were controlled by Condé Nast. And there were, you know, 10 publications and none of them were speaking to, you know, people like me. So, you know, I went, we went from that and where like the comedy that you could do and have a long career was 
really slender boxes to now huge, right? That much bigger boxes. So I think there's greater opportunities for longevity and, and things like that, which are really neat. I think we're, we'll see and we'll see greater and greater creative, like creative careers that way. Well, I think what's, what's exciting to me and, and for authors like you and, and fellow comics, Duncan, uh, you know, is that, like you say, there's so many more, you know, when I was growing up, the only comedy I ever saw was on The Tonight Show. And if you weren't one of those 20 comics that Johnny Carson liked, you were kind of effed mm-hmm. in terms of making it. Now you have, you know, uh, Netflix, uh, HBO, Amazon, Hulu. Uh, Comedy Central, YouTube, you know, a lot of comics. uh, And I see some uh, self-help authors are are putting their videos or comedy on YouTube for free and just saying, here it is, watch it Um, with no manager or agent or whatnot. And uh, so I think it's an awesome time to be a creative in any field. Um, I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think the other half of the equation where this conversation started is because we're gaining an understanding of sort of peak performance, how it works in our bodies, how we can get, you know, how we can get more of it, basically, for time, um, quality is going up. And I think it's less difficult to be a creative, right? The hardest part for me of being a creative, especially when I was coming up before I understood peak performance, was the ups, the emotional ups and downs being locked out of flow not, you know, for long stretches of time, things like that, where I, you know, couldn't, couldn't perform my best and, and whatever. And now I think, you know, not only do we have more channels for expression, but we have more control over the tools of performance than we've ever had. I also think uh, it's what I loved about your book, The Art of Impossible. Please, guys, I don't get a cut of the profits here. Please buy it. It is a very quick read. And you know, I went to a Tony Robbins seminar once, uh, you, you know, he had me break the board and walk on the fire and all that stuff. Uh, but I, I, there was just something off about the delivery that didn't work for me. So uh, your style works for me because it's a little more blunt. It's a little more. Here's the facts. Yeah, I just I, Tony and I seem to do different. Tony seems to be doing self-help. Um, I'm not quite sure what, what I've never been really comfortable with self-help. Um, I'm. You know, I'm just I'm inter- I'm interested in the the science. How this is how humans work. This is how we get them to work work better. And um, and maybe that's what Tony's doing. Um, and it just seems very different. But I'm like you. I I want it practical. I don't too much pageantry doesn't work for me. Yeah, I and mean, that's not talking bad about Mr. Robbins. You know, I, I, no. Yeah, I mean, I like I've met him. He's a he's an interesting dude, and he's. Um, my partner, Peter Diamandis, he's one of his closest friends. So like, you know, I have nothing, and he clearly has made a dent in tons of people's lives, but I'm like you, it's not, it didn't click with me. I, I have to come at these things in a different way. Yeah. And I'm sure he would work for, uh, you know, obviously has worked for hundreds of thousands of people, but I'm going to try and not that you need my help, Stephen. No, I appreciate it. All. I need all the help I can get, I think. Well, first of all, I owe you thank you just for doing this podcast because, like I said, most people say no. Um, yeah, I don't. I, the other thing is, I don't get like my. The other thing is like, I always thought like to me, I just wanted to smuggle flow and peak performance sort of into the heart of you know 
not the mainstream, but like the, just the world. Cause like, like these are the more interesting conversations to me. Um, Cause I like comedy a lot. You know what I mean? It's, it's contributed a great deal to my life overall. So I get to talk to comics and they're going to be better at comedy as a result. Cool. Like that, like, okay, uh, that's a good bargain for me. I'll take that trade. Oh no. I mean, you're, you know, lessons on stacking little dopamine hits has, has helped me already. And like, well that, yeah, that's, so that was your qu- answer to like questions. How do you get there at minute seven? Right. That's what I would start talking about is stacking dopamine, like maybe giving yourself a couple spots to take a chance at minute three and another one at minute six, right? Just, you know, this is an improv line. Um, I've got those when I give speeches, you know, I've got I like humor. So I've got like three or four or five, you know, spots and I've got a rotating sort of carousel of jokes that drop in depending on like who my audience is and what's appropriate, what I could actually get away with saying on stage, um, you know, and those kinds of questions. And when they go wrong, there's definitely less flow afterwards in the speech. And when they go right, you know what I mean? They, they, they do their job. Um, and then the time goes by better on stage. I think the most important thing for me is the days I like the best, by the way, on stage is or on stage or as a, as a writer or as an athlete, anything like that. Is I like the days when I actually learn to perform at my best. I do all the things I used to need to be in flow to do. And now I can do without flow. That's usually a sign that I'm about to like level up a whole new level. Right. But there's always I always it, it, as I, I'm a skier and there's always a day as I'm leveling up as a skier. Where like I go out and I do all the crazy hard gnarly shit I did the early season inflow, and this is now I've been practicing all those things now for a couple of months, and now I like have a day where I'm tired, maybe I'm hungover, I like I can't, I got nothing, and yet I pull all the same shit off that at the start of the season needed flow, and now I can do without it, and I, that happens in writing too. There are books I've written, some of my earlier books where I could write that way, but only if I was in flow. And then it literally took me years to figure out how to do the same thing out of flow. And once you get there, then you get a whole huge level up. And so like, those are really interesting to me too. They feel awful, right? I don't know if you have that experience with comedy, but like my experience as an athlete or as a writer in those days, like it fucking sucks. But like, I come away from the end. I'm like, wow, that was a hell of a victory. That was amazing. I don't know how you did that. Oh, I have many nights like that, Stephen. But first of all, I'd like to thank your assistant, Anne, for setting this all up. She told me you have a hard out at an hour. We are at an hour. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. I could talk to you forever. Um, So uh, the book is The Art of Impossible by Stephen Kotler. It's not the only book he's written. Go to stephencotler.com. And uh, where can they find you on Twitter, Stephen? I think it's at Stephen underscore Kotler. And uh, follow him on there. And uh, he's really a fantastic. Yeah, that is true. I, by the way, I just did not quite know what my Twitter address is. <laughs> Let me look it up real fast just so we can. Uh, I don't want to direct anyone uh, of our fans to. Uh, it, yes, it is Stephen underscore Kotler on Twitter. Uh, what's fun, yeah. Well, and what's funny is you discovered all of the, I'm on Twitter. I just don't know my, you know, but you can reach me that way. Well, usually when I read a book, I'll uh, go, oh, they got to be on Twitter. 
um, and most are, and then most never get back to me. And you got back to me immediately and said, I'll do your podcast. Just don't ask me. And I can only imagine you get the same questions. And I'm sure the interviewers mean, well, how do I get into flow, Stephen? Uh, what is great? They're, they're, they're great. I, I just like that, you know, we talked about all the same stuff, but we got to talk about it under the lens of comedy. And that's neat. I got to learn more about comedy than I knew before. So that's, you know, that's cool to me. Well, I think comedy is such a flow uh, business. I mean, when you're in it, I tell people it's a sexual high when it's going well. Uh, if that makes any sense, it's like a good golf shot. I, I don't know why I uh, relay things to sex from the standpoint of the feeling, but a good golf shot is the same feeling. Uh, and comedy is a flow when it's going well, those minutes seem like seconds when it's not going well, they seem like hours. So, uh, Stephen, I really thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing this. And, uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It was fun hanging out. Oh, please. Uh, let me know when you're in L.A. so I can uh, grill you some more with two more questions. that will take two hours. OK, we can do that. I'm not in L.A. very often, but I've, I've been getting a bunch of requests from friends to come out sooner or later. So I'll do it. All right, Stephen. Thank you so much and have a great Thanks, day. Adam.